0: Good to see all of you this morning. It is a full house today, and uh, we want to extend a special welcome uh, to any guests or visitors that are here if this is your first time here. Uh, We just want to say that, uh, like Andy said this morning, we we really truly believe it's no accident that every single one of you are here, and uh, although it might have been difficult to find a place physically uh, for you, setting up chairs and everything this morning, uh, there is a place for every single one of you here in this family and in God's family, and uh, he says to you this morning, uh, and he says to all of us, you are mine. You are mine. No matter how young or old you are, you're, you're my kids. You're a part of my family. You are mine. And essentially, that's uh, a little bit later on today in our second service. We're going to have a baptism, and we've been having a whole slew of baptisms, and we're going to continue to have a slew of them. So praise God for that. God is doing some really cool things. At the baptism later on, Today, I'm going to baptize a little girl named Hannah, and at the end of that baptism, I'm going to take some oil, which is in, the, uh, in Scripture, oil is used as something that, that we use to anoint people and set them apart for a specific purpose. I'm going to take some oil, I'm going to put it on her forehead, and I'm going to say, Hannah Grace, child of God, you have been sealed with the sign of the cross and filled with the Holy Spirit now and forever. And I was thinking about that today, and I was thinking about all of you, and that we're all God's kids too. And that every single day when you wake up, as we have a relationship with our Heavenly Father, He says that to you as well. You're my kid. You're my son, or you're my daughter, and you are mine. And not only are you mine, but I'm giving you a purpose I have a plan for your life. I'm giving you a purpose for your life. I'm setting you apart. Just as we say at baptism, that is to let your light shine before men that they may see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. Every single one of us has been given a purpose, to be a light that points others to Jesus Christ, and that's God's design for all of our lives. It's not just for little cute babies that are being baptized. God says to you this morning, you are mine, and I have a plan, and I have a purpose, for your life. But for some reason, that question kind of hangs over us, sometimes from a very early age all the way long into adulthood. And it's that question that was up on the screen today that we, that we looked at, how do I find God's will for my life? Whether you were baptized as an infant or not, we are given a lot of safety and security when we're little, but then we grow up, and sometimes this question never goes away. Although when we're little, uh, that question of how do I find God's will, how do I find God's purpose for my life, it starts out a lot simpler than that because maybe you were asked when you were growing up a question, uh, something to the effect of what do you want to be when you grow up, up, right? What was that for you? Just think about that for a second. What did you want to be when you grew up? What was it for you when the sky was the limit? (laughs) Who did you want to be? Well, my dad, who's also a pastor, uh, has been a pastor for a long time, about, I don't know, 10 or 15 years ago, he was doing a children's sermon, and he had about 15 or 20 little kids around him, you know, 5 to 10 years old, somewhere in there. And the topic of his children's sermon was he was asking the question to all these little kids in front of the whole church, needless to say, uh, what do you want to be when you grow up? And he was going around, and this you know, boy said, a policeman, or, or this boy said, I, you know, I want to be a professional baseball player, and all those typical answers. And then there was this, this small little cute girl in a little pink dress in the front row, and so my dad is, you know, he's sending the microphone around, and he gets to this little cute girl, and he's thinking, okay, she's going to say like, you know, ballerina, or Barbie, or something, I don't know what girls want to be when they grow up, I, I'm not one. Um, and so he's, he gets to her, and he's thinking she's going to say something cute, and he says, uh, I can't remember what her name was, he said, what do you wanna be when you grow up, honey? And she looks right at him, and then looks down at the microphone, and then a loud voice goes, a witch! (laughs) And uh, trying to stay in the moment and being very pastoral, my dad looks at her and goes, well, I think you'll have to pray about that then. Maybe have to talk to God about that. And it's all fun, and it's, it's, we joke about it, and it's all innocent, and, and I, I kind of wonder, where does that go sometimes? Because then we grow up, and the question gets a little bit more serious, right? You get into high school, and you, you get into college, and then all of a sudden, it's, what's God's call on my life? What should my vocation be? And then when you start to follow Christ, and you become a Christian, then we kind of throw in the God factor there, and the question becomes, what's God's will, for my life. And because we're in a performance-driven culture, it usually gets attached to our job and sometimes into our adulthood. What was once an innocent, fun, exciting question full of joy and wonder becomes this burden and almost this weight that's hanging over us that if for some reason you can't figure out what God's will is for your life, then somehow you're disappointing God. I don't know if you've ever felt that way before, I think all of us are searching for that, and not just for, for college students, but a lot of us carry that into our 20s and our 30s and 40s, and that's one of the reasons that there's this thing called a midlife crisis right? <laughs> yeah, and you can resonate with that. Or there's maybe some of you that have reached that, mid, that midpoint in your life, or you're getting closer to your retirement, and you're thinking back over your life, and you've done all these things, and you accomplished all these things, and yet you're looking back in your life and saying, what was it all for? Did, did I really accomplish what, God, what God's will was for my life? And yet some of you that are younger than that are not quite there are sitting here today thinking, I don't want to get to that point. I want to know what God's will for my life is now. And we're asking God. And it can seem kind of scary. If you it can imagine if you're sitting in a big giant movie theater like with a huge IMAX screen and it's just blank. There's nothing on that screen. Some of you are looking at your lives today and thinking, that's my understanding of God's will for my life. It is a blank screen. It is a blank page. I don't even know where to start. It's almost like you're, you're standing at one of those forks in the road, you know, in, in the country when the, when the roads are split. And you're standing right there in the middle of it, and you're looking at all these different directions, and you're going, God, what do you want me to do? <laughs> No matter what season or stage of life you're at, you might be saying, well, I could go that way, I could go that way, I could go that way. This is kind of slippery. Um, And you're wondering which way to turn. Well, the good thing is today that we have this scripture story in front of us from the Bible that is not just from thousands of years ago, it is very, very relevant for us today. And today, we're going to learn about the story of a young woman who probably was asking a lot of these same questions. And so as we encounter her story, we'll discover that maybe discovering how we find God's will for our life is a lot closer than you might have thought. And so we're going to dig into that today. So if you've got your Bibles, open up, uh, if you're in the story Bible, open up to page 279. If you're in this Bible, the Story Bible, page 279, or if you have another Bible, Esther chapter 3. Esther chapter 3. Today we're looking at chapter 20 of the story as we've been reading uh, through this the last several months and these, these foundational stories of, of Scripture, and we are almost, almost three quarters of the way through. Can you believe it? We're cruising along, and we're almost to the New Testament, but we have an incredible story today, and we are in, when we drop into this story, we're in the 5th century BC in the land of Persia, in, the, in the, uh, the reign of King Xerxes. And if you look up at the screen, kind of this orange area, this orange kind of color, that is everywhere that the Persian Empire has conquered at this time. They are the dominant country at the time. So this is around the Arabian Sea, and you can see the Mediterranean Sea. This is kind of Western uh, Asia, and then down there in Africa in the lower left-hand corner. So this is a massive, massive kingdom. And our story today takes place in the capital city of Susa. And so there is this Persian king, King Xerxes, and we know that whenever you uh, mix Two uh, nationalities together, there can be some fireworks. And that's what's happened. Why are we in Persia? Because that's where God's people, the Israelites, are in captivity. God's people from Judah. Remember, there's a northern kingdom and a southern kingdom. The southern kingdom is Judah, and they've been taken captive into the land of Persia. When you put two different nations together, they don't always get along well, and that couldn't be more true than in the relationship of Haman who is from the the King Xerxes' cabinet in Persia, and a man named Mordecai. Everybody say Mordecai. Mordecai. And so as you look at page 279, we're going to pick up the story and learn about Haman, who's from Persia, and Mordecai, who is a Jew, who is an Israelite, who is living in Persia. So Persia is not their home. And so we pick up the story at the bottom of page 279. And we are... uh, Yes, in Esther chapter 3. After these events, King Xerxes honored Haman, son of Hamadatha uh, There's a fun name for you. The Agagite, elevating him and giving him a seat of honor higher than that of all the other nobles. All the royal officials at the king's gate knelt down and paid honor to Haman, for the king had commanded this concerning him. But Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor. So to set the stage, Haman is actually an Agagite, a long time, this this group of people that was a long time enemy of the Jews. And he has been bitter for hundreds of years against the Jews because of something that King Saul did long ago. And he happens to have a pretty high spot in the king's cabinet. But because Mordecai was a Jew and a God follower, God follower, Mordecai says, I'm not going to bow down to you like everybody else. And this just makes Haman irate. So we continue on the top of page 280. We're in verse 5. When Haman saw that Mordecai would not kneel down or pay him honor, he was enraged. Yet having learned who Mordecai's people were, a.k.a. the Jews, he scorned the idea of killing only Mordecai. He said, I want more. Instead, Haman looked for a way to destroy all Mordecai's people, the Jews, throughout the whole kingdom of Xerxes. Xerxes. So needless to say, Haman and Mordecai do not like each other at all. I mean, you put them in a boxing ring and they would go at it. They are not fans of each other. This would make like a great episode of the Jerry Springer show or something like that, right? Old Testament style, okay? But not only does Haman want to get even with Mordecai because he's a Jew, he's like, I'm so mad at you, I'm going to take out all your people. So there's, there's none of them left. I'm going I'm to wipe you out. So Haman, who is pretty high member of King Xerxes' cabinet, goes to the king and says this, a little bit farther down on page 280. "'Then Haman said to King Xerxes, "'There is a certain people dispersed among the peoples "'in all the provinces of your kingdom,' "'a.k.a. the Jews, "'who keep themselves separate. "'Their customs are different from those of all the other people, "'and they do not obey the king's laws.'" it is not in the king's best interest to tolerate them if it pleases the king let it be a decree let a decree be issued to destroy them and so not only that haman actually casts lots which is just a way of saying they basically rolled some dice to decide when would the day be when we're going to exterminate all of the jews in the persian empire this day, they, Haman came up with this plan. Even though the king didn't say this plan was okay, Haman says, I'm going to roll the dice. And whatever day it happens to fall on, that's a day when anybody living in the entire Persian Empire can just kill any Hebrew that they see. Kind of scary stuff. And it happened to fall on the, the 12th month, which is Adar. Everybody say Adar. So they have different months. They don't have January, February, March, uh, April. But... that that it would happen in the 12th month of Adar, which happens to be the middle of February. Coincidence? I think not. So, and that ends up being about 11 months away. So from the time the decree happens to when all the Hebrews are going to be killed, we've got about 11 months. And so in one day, all the people would be gone. And so can you imagine being Hebrew, living in Persia? I mean, this is the closest thing that we have to, like, the Holocaust, right? And Haman's kind of playing the role of kind of a Hitler-type character here. I mean, essentially, for all of God's people, they're on death row. Any day, you could just be done. But not only are they on death row, this is God's people, the Israelites who he's been protecting this entire time. In other words, it kind of seems like God's plan to save and rescue the world, is also on death row. You might say that in the lower story, remember the upper and lower story? In the lower story, the dice did not fall in Israel's favor. But at the same time, there's something else going on here. Remember, there's two stories going on, even though we can only see one. So I'm gonna have a couple volunteers up and do a little uh, demonstration for you here uh, to demonstrate what's going on in this story. Everybody give our volunteers a hand. They're very brave. All right. So uh, what they're gonna do is they're gonna stretch this twine out across the front. And what I thought we would do is have a Hope Des Moines game of limbo. Everybody ready? No, we're not going to do that. So, um, yeah, don't clothesline me. So we've been talking about, as the entire time we've been reading the story, we started down here in the book of Genesis, and we've been reading all the way through, and in terms of where the story is, we're about right here. We're about three-fourths of the way through. This is where the story of Esther is taking place. And we've been following this group of people, the Israelites, all the way from beginning to end. And if you can remember, way back here in Genesis 12, God came to this guy named Abraham. Remember Abraham? And he made this promise to him, and we're going to put it up on the screen. And this is the promise that God made to Abraham about his descendants. Let's read that together. I will make you into a great nation, and I will bless you, and all peoples on earth will be blessed through you. So God meant literally in a worldly sense, I want you to bless the peoples of the earth, but also in a spiritual sense that from you, Abraham, from your descendants, from your seed, I'm going to eventually send a savior named Jesus way down here in the story. And that's my promise. God says, I'm going to keep my promise the entire way through. And the way that that's going to happen is through Abraham's descendants. So for God's plan to work, we got to keep these people from Judah now, alive and healthy all the way from here all the way down there to when the messiah comes that's what's got to happen to keep god's plan alive so if you're the devil if you're satan and you want to thwart god's plan what's the one thing that you should probably do to eliminate the chance of the messiah coming destroy the seed destroy the, seed. Destroy the descendants right if, if, if I'm Satan, I'm kind of looking at this, and I've got to say, somewhere along the line here, I've got to stop the story. I've got to get rid of them. Essentially, cut off the story right where we are. So the danger is that we've gotten this far. And that's the danger that we face here in chapter 20. But I also want you to look at this in another way. For some of you, the danger that they're facing here in the book of Esther is very similar to what you might be feeling in your life. All of us in our life at some point, everything's going along well, and at some point we come to this, this spot where one of a couple things happens. First of all, it either seems like God is putting up a huge sign that says slow. You ever seen one of those signs you're driving along as says slow down, right? You want things to speed up in your story, but God slows it down. And you kind of hit a speed bump. God says, slow down. You say, I want this relationship to move faster. I want to get that job faster. I want things to click along. And God's saying, slow down. For others of you, that point that you reach in your story, sometimes you're going along and all of a sudden life kind of throws you a curveball. Somebody that you're close to passes away. Somebody in your family continues to make bad decisions. There's that addiction that you just can't get past and it feels like your story has come to a screeching halt. There's that sin that you just can't get over in your life. You continue to make bad choices after bad choices after bad choices. We all have those times in our lives when it seems like things are just going along. And just like here for Mordecai and God's people in the book of Esther, sometimes it seems like the darkness gets the best of us. And in our lower story, what you and I can see in our lives, it's as if the enemy comes along and says, end of story. And it's easy to feel like that sometimes. My life is going nowhere or my life has come to a screeching halt. That's where we are in chapter 20 of the story. And at one point or another, I think all of us ask in our lives, have you ever asked this, where is God? Where is God in the midst of that? God, all your people are going to be killed, murdered, every single one of them, and the story is going to be cut in two. It's going to be stopped. There will be no Messiah. Have you ever asked that when you're going through a certain time in your life? God, where were you during that time? Just a side note here. If you ever happen to be on Jeopardy, has anybody ever been on Jeopardy? I just want to make sure. Okay. If you ever happen to be on the game show Jeopardy, they might ask you this question, and I don't want you to be stumped. Okay? I want you to hear it from me first. They might ask the question, what is the, uh, the, the, the book, or excuse me, they would pose it this way. The book in the Bible that doesn't mention God's name once. What would your answer be? Nope. you're on Jeopardy. What is Esther? Come on, people. (laughs) Right? What is Esther? Nowhere in this book is God's name even mentioned. And yet what I want to propose to you today, that as we look deeper into this story, even though his name is not mentioned, his fingerprints are all over it. And might that not also be true of your life. What the bad guy, Haman, doesn't realize is that he's dealing with an all-powerful, all-knowing God who is telling another story. So I'm going to have my volunteers hop back up here again. There's something else going on here. Remember what we've been learning, that in every story of the Bible, there is a lower story... That although it seems to be over and ruined and cut in half, there is another story that God is telling. If I could have them do both at the same time, I could see how coordinated they are. So imagine that red line running through here. And for the Israelites, it's looking like the lower story is over. We're going to be extinct. But what they don't see and what Haman doesn't see is that God's story, the blue thread, is running through this entire story as well and God says even though you don't see me at the time doesn't mean I'm not there working behind the scenes every step of the way know this i am a god that keeps my promises so for the rest of the me- message imagine that red line running underneath here and imagine god's story the upper story running along Above it. Give our volunteers a round of applause here. They did a very nice job. And so we pick up our story on page 278. No character in the Bible knows the power of trusting in God's promises more than a young gal named Esther. Page 278 or Esther chapter 2, verse 7. We're going back just a little bit. Esther chapter 2, verse 7. Top of page 278. So Mordecai, remember Mordecai, had a cousin named Hadassah, whom he had brought up because she had neither father nor mother. This young woman, who is also known as Esther, had a lovely figure and was beautiful. Mordecai had taken her as his own daughter when her father and mother died. So it just so happens that Esther, who this book is named after, is an orphan, and she is raised by her uncle, who's our friend Mordecai. And if Mordecai is a Jew and she's related to Mordecai, what does that make Esther? A Jew. Great time to be in Persia as a Jew, isn't it? Right? So if you're Esther and Mordecai and you are an adopted orphan into this family and nobody really knows what nationality you are, if you're Esther, are you going to go around town announcing, hey, I'm a Hebrew, kill me? Probably not, right? You want to keep your nationality, your identity, a secret. And so to protect her, her and Mordecai come up with this plan to keep her identity a secret. Well, it turns out that when Esther is a young woman, King Xerxes is having sort of a cross between a Miss America pageant and American Idol. okay? And he has hundreds and hundreds of young women come and perform before him, and then he gets to choose his favorites, and if you're not chosen, then you get sent away. Pretty harsh system. And so he has hundreds of women come in and guess, among all the women, guess who happens to be chosen as the winner? Esther. So get this, not only does she win the competition, King Xerxes says, whoever I choose is going to become the new queen of Persia. So how ironic is this, that in a country where the Hebrews are all about to be slaughtered, little does the king know that his new queen is a... Jew, she's a Hebrew, it's Esther. This is so cool, God working behind the scenes. And so we pick up the story a little bit later on. It's during this time that this plot comes by Haman to extinguish all the Jews. And so if you're Mordecai and your adopted daughter is now the queen... She's in a position of power and influence. And so Mordecai goes to Esther and says, hey, you got to do something. You got to get in the king's ear and, and mess up this plot somehow so that we can save our people. And you can imagine, Esther, when you were 17, what if somebody would have come to you and said, it's up to you to save your entire nation? Great, I'll get right on it. I was made for this, right? No, Esther's scared out of her mind. Completely overwhelmed. She's just a teenager. And so she decides, no, this is way too dangerous. But watch what Mordecai says to her. Skip a couple pages ahead to page 282. Page 282 uh, in your story or chapter 4, verse 12. Esther chapter 4, verse 12. So she says, Mordecai, I'm not going to do it. And watch how Mordecai responds. When Esther's words were reported to Mordecai, he sent back this answer. Do not think that because you are in the king's house, you alone of all the Jews will escape. For if you remain silent at this time, relief and deliverance for the Jews will arise from another place. But you and your father's family will perish. And who knows, now listen to this, and who knows but that you have come to your royal position for such a time as this. For such a time as this. As this. In other words, Mordecai says to Esther and maybe to us today, hey, it's time to wake up. It's time to look around you at the opportunities around you. God may choose to save his people in some other way, but Esther, you are in a perfect position to do something about it. So you're going to join in with what God's doing or not. And this is the first key that I believe to finding our call and our purpose on our lives just as Esther was starting to do. And it's this. Be who you are where you are. Write that down. Be who you are where you are. You may not be the queen of Persia today, but every single one of us is the only us where you are. Think about that for a second. You are the only person in your office. You are the only person in your cubicle. You are the only person in your family, in your circle of friends, wherever you are, in your area of influence. And like Esther, it would be very easy to say, why am I the one that has to be here? Why has God placed this burden on me? Why do I have to be with such weirdos at work? Why does my family have to be so messed up? Why is my small group so weird sometimes? And you wonder, why are you the person in that spot? And what ends up happening as we continue this through our lives, we develop this sickness. And this sickness is called the just a sickness. Everybody say, just a. And you just kind of have these, these hiccups, these coughs and say, just a. And it goes something like this. Oh, I'm just a teacher. Oh, I'm, I'm just an accountant. Oh, I'm just a stay-at-home mom. I'm just a. Essentially what you're saying is, there's nothing really special about me. I'm not a pastor, I'm not a missionary, so how can I possibly truly make an impact for God? The answer is, be who you are, where you are. If God is telling a story that's bigger than the one that we can see, it's not, oh, I'm just a, it's, yes, thank God that you're a teacher because we need the spirit of God moving in our schools like never before, amen? Amen. Thank God that you're an accountant because there are people sitting in your little cubby land in your office that desperately need somebody to listen to them and encourage them and give them hope and love. Thank God that you are a stay-at-home mom because you have the opportunity to reach other stay-at-home moms that are, need a little encouragement that stay home and they're all over town. Thank God that you are in that position. Just like Mordecai says to Esther, maybe for such a time as this, you are where you are. If you're wondering about what that looks like, I want you to take a look at the story of a lady named Kimberly, who by all worldly standards is kind of owns a construction company. She remodels homes. And some of you might be thinking today, I am so ordinary. My position, my job is so ordinary. Watch Kimberly's story and listen to how she describes how she sees God working through her where she already is. Let's take a look.
1: We're given 24 hours a day. We sleep one third of it. We spend part of the time with family and friends and the rest of the time is at work. We spend more time at work than we do doing any other single thing. I just can't believe that God doesn't have a higher purpose for us. I own a design-intensive construction company and most of our work focuses on older residential buildings, mostly from the 1920s, in our neighborhood. There are properties that have been completely neglected for many, many years. We love this neighborhood, and where there's the potential to restore a house rather than tear it down, we're going to pursue that. When I go to work each day, I just pray that God will help me to do my very best. The closer in relationship I am with God, the better able I am to be my best at work. Subcontractor at work. I want to be in an authentic relationship with that person. Hey, Ina. How are you? Good. Well, you okay? Yeah, doing good. Good. I don't see my very best friends as often as I see the people with whom I work on the job site. So I take those relationships very seriously. There's a responsibility towards excellence because I wouldn't be comfortable putting myself out there as a Christian and doing shoddy work. We often get the message that in order to do godly work, we need to be pastors or evangelists or Sunday school teachers. I don't feel gifted to be a pastor, but I do feel strongly gifted to build homes. And I want to use that work to honor God. We as people, as God's creations, are a reflection of Him. If our output to the world is is our work, then we want it to continue that reflection. I believe this process is a high calling.
0: Isn't that awesome? Totally different perspective of the way that we look at our jobs. Be who you are, where you are. Where has God placed you? You may not be in the perfect ideal spot in your life right now. And you may not be there forever. We ebb and flow and we're at different places and different times in our lives. But as long as we view God's will for our life as some like, it's just out there. It's some carrot that God is dangling out in front of us. And we've got to go discover it. We've got to go find it out. We've, we've got to make something happen. We're going to miss all the people that God has placed around our lives every single day that he wants us to be a blessing to, to look around you and see what is God doing? What is God already up to where I already am? And that's exactly what Esther does. She's motivated by Mordecai's encouragement to her. And we pick up the story on page 282, chapter 4, verse 15. Then Esther sent this reply to Mordecai. Go, gather together all the Jews who are in Susa and fast for me. Do not eat or drink for three days, night or day. I and my attendants will fast as you do. When this is done, listen to what she says. I will go to the king even though it is against the law. And if I perish, I perish. For such a time as this Mordecai says to Esther God is already on the move Esther in this situation and your choice in life is whether you're going to join him in that or not and this is the second essential truth that I believe that Esther shares with us about finding our calling in life maybe instead of constantly asking God what is your will what is your purpose for my life maybe the first question that we should be asking is God what are you already doing God, what are you passionate about? God, what are your purposes in this world? And how can I join in with what you're already doing? How can I join you in this city? How can I join you in what you're already doing in this church? Because trust me, God has been making things happen a lot longer and long before you ever arrived on the scene. In your job in your workplace, in your family. If we're asking what God's will is, shouldn't we be asking what's on his heart? What he's passionate about? For Kimberly, that she discovered that God is passionate about restoring the city. And so she's participating in that one house at a time. In a very real way, the past couple weeks, I don't know if you've noticed about this Super Bowl drive that we're doing last week, it was food. This week, it's hygiene products, and we're sharing it with our mission partners around the city. I don't know if you know this or not, but Hope Des Moines, Hope Ankeny, Hope Johnston Grimes, Hope West Des Moines, all together as one family, in these two weekends, will fill, fill to overflowing, over 20 food pantries All across central Iowa. Praise God for that. Isn't that awesome? You may think, oh, I just brought one little bag and that's not really making that much of a difference. I don't know about you, but when I participate in something like that, I feel a deep sense of purpose. Like it's a high calling. A deep sense of purpose. Why? Because God is passionate about feeding the hungry. So we didn't have to say, oh, what are we going to do for our February mission project? God's already passionate about feeding people that are hungry, and there's tens of thousands of people all over Des Moines that are starving, so why not join in with what God is already doing? And that's what Esther does. She decides to go and risk her life before the king. She requests a dinner, a dinner party for three With her, the king, and Haman. Now, if you're Haman, you're thinking, oh, this is great. This is awesome. I got a dinner date with the king and queen, and my plan is going to work perfectly. But God's upper story is about to go crashing in to Haman's lower story. So let's pick it up on page 285. 285, we're in chapter 7 of Esther now, verse 3. Chapter 7, verse 3, page 285. So it's Esther, the king, and Haman. Haman has no idea that Esther is a Hebrew. Then Queen Esther answered, If I have found favor with you, your majesty, and if it pleases you, grant me my life. This is my petition. And spare my people. This is my request. For I and my people have been sold to be destroyed, killed, and annihilated. If we had been merely sold... As male and female slaves, I would have kept quiet because no such distress would justify disturbing the king. Not only does Esther lay her life on the line, exposing Haman's plot, she reveals her identity. Do you see what she said? My people, meaning before the king who has all the power to kill her, she says, I'm one of them. I'm putting myself out there. According to the current law, she should be killed along with everybody else. And that's the third key, strangely enough, to finding our purpose and our calling in this life. And it's this, start to live sacrificially. Write that down. Start to live sacrificially. Start living for something beyond yourself. Start living for more than what this world can offer and just getting more stuff, of consuming what the media tells you, of consuming what culture says. Just, just go and get all your needs met. You know, it's have it your way, right, is the message that we're getting. Have it your way. Do whatever makes you happy. If that relationship, if that small group, if that church, if that marriage isn't meeting your needs, ditch it. Which is the exact opposite of what God calls us to do in his kingdom. Live sacrificially. How do we know that this is how we find our purpose? Our Lord and Savior, about a thousand years later, told his disciples this. Whoever wants to save their life will lose it, but whoever loses their life for me and the gospel will save it, which is exactly what Queen Esther did for her people. She started to live sacrificially. She said, in order to find my purpose in life, I got to start looking outside myself and not just consuming what can I get and what makes me happy. Start living for other people. And in that, Esther found her divine purpose. And in that, not only was Haman sentenced to death, King Xerxes allowed the law to be changed so that on that day, the Hebrews would be able to defend themselves. And on that day, in the month of Adair, the Israelites fought back. And not only did they fight back, they destroyed, destroyed over 75,000 Persians, saving the line of Judah. And God's promise continues. The feast, the festival that they celebrate still to this day is called the Festival of Purim, which means literally means the festival of casting lots because you remember earlier in the story Haman cast lots of when he was going to kill all God's people. Watch what Proverbs 16 says. Let's throw that up on the screen. Proverbs 16 verse 33. Let's read that together. We may throw the dice, but the Lord determines how they fall. In the lower story, the dice didn't fall in Israel's favor. But in the upper story, God controls how the dice fall. I want you to know today that these lower story scenes of our life, they may seem ordinary or insignificant. Maybe it's those times in your life where it feels like things are just moving really slowly. Maybe it's those times in your life when you are completely frustrated with how things are going and you are really struggling. Maybe it's those times in life when you're searching for direction and you're wondering, where's God in the midst of that? I don't know if you notice about all these little slides, but there's other pictures around them. And I think that's how it is in our lives sometimes. We think, oh, I'm the only one going through that. But you see, there's a whole bunch of other things going on around it that God is working behind the scenes. And when we zoom out, do you know what that's a close-up picture of? A beautiful mosaic with God's fingerprints all over it. Every single one of those little pix- pixels is a picture the scenes of our lives are wrapped by God into this beautiful mosaic the lower story and God's hand all over it in the upper story what God says to the nation of Judah is what he says to you and I today I will never let you go I will never let you go would you stand with me Today we're going to do a little something different. I would invite you to just be fully present to God right now. And the band's going to lead us in some worship. And I would, I would invite us to just stay focused right here, right now. On what God is doing. Because I think that he has a message for us today. And it's that in all those times in your life when you thought I wasn't working behind the scenes, I was there the whole time. My fingerprints were all over it. And so we're going to worship and the band's going to lead us in this song. And when we're done with that song, I just want you to remain standing. Don't go anywhere. Service isn't over. I just want you to hang just for a minute. And we're going to watch one final video today that's going to send us out. So when we're done singing this song, I want you to just stay connected with God, be in the moment, be fully present. And when we're done worshiping together, We're going to take one final look at what God is calling us to do today. So let's sing of God's promises today about how he never lets us go. Let's worship together. That is God's promise for us today, but I don't want to end there. I want to send you out with a purpose and a plan that God has placed on every single one of our lives. I think if Esther was here today, she'd want to give all of us a little pep talk. But unfortunately, Esther could not be here today, she's passed away. But in her place, we have another person that wants to give you a little pep talk that I think is right on with the message of Esther's story for us today, that you were created on purpose, with a plan, and that God wants you. After you have have, have sought him, after you have asked, God, what are you doing in this world? After you have decided to live sacrificially and live outside of yourself, there is only one thing to do. And it's to get out there and do something awesome for the kingdom of God. And so instead of Esther giving you a little pep talk as we close today, I'm going to turn it over. Just remain standing. I'm going to turn it over to our friend, His name is Kid President. He's a little bit younger than you might think, but he's got a message from Esther to you today. Take a look. Amen? So what I want you to do, what I want you to do is get out of your comfort zone a little bit. I want you to look at the people next to you. I just want you to put your hand on their shoulders, and we're going to do something Awesome. We're just going to do a little dance, all right? On the count of three, I just, want, I just want you to shake your hips a little bit, okay? All right? I just want you to shake your hips a little bit. Ready? One, two, three. Just shake your hips a little bit. Do a little dance, okay? Put your hands down. What are you going to do this week that's awesome? Esther stepped into that moment of her life and she said, for such a time as this, go do something awesome for the kingdom of God this week. Instead of doing our final worship song, I want you to look at the people next to you. I want you to give them another high five and on your way out, before you leave, give somebody next to you a high five and say, we've got work to do. Do it right now.